You're listening to the Revelation Podcast brought to you by Open Bible Baptist Church. We're so glad you've chosen to listen today. To learn more about Open Bible or to hear more messages, visit openbible.ca. In today's episode, Dr. Neil Sawatsky talks about the wrath of God. When will the rapture happen and what will God's wrath look like? To answer these questions, here is Dr. Neil Sawatsky. I want you to turn tonight to the book of the Revelation, chapter 15, please. And uh, if you would find that, we're going to be uh, talking tonight about the beginning of the wrath of God. Uh, I think it's I think it's important for us to understand a little bit about what is happening here in the book of the Revelation. We we looked at chapter 14, and when we come to the end of chapter 14, we essentially come to the conclusion of the battle of Armageddon. So that would be the end of the tribulation, because the battle of Armageddon is closed down by Christ coming to finish all of the enemies. So it's just kind of a foresight. It's kind of a layout of what is to happen. And then uh, verse 15 and on, uh, chapter 15 and on, these are particulars. So that's what uh, that's that's how the book seems to unfold. So we look at chapter 15, which again gives us the beginning of the wrath of God. And then it's followed by precise announcements about what is happening during the time when the wrath of God comes on earth. So this is not from chapter 15 to chapter 19. They're not the exciting, pleasant, nothing pleasant. I mean, nothing in the book of the Revelation has been really pleasant, but but it's now beginning to be heavy duty. So I hope that you'll be able to endure this because we're looking at some things that are really grotesque and things that are uh, that are really extreme and they're horrific. So, uh, so when we think in terms of the wrath of God, we're thinking in terms of a God that is a consuming fire. And the book of Hebrews talks about that to fall into the hands of our God as a consuming fire is an extremely dangerous thing. And the world will encounter that, and we are going to see some of that as we walk through uh, step by step. So we have that in Revelation chapter 15. So I want us to begin by talking about a concept that I think is important for us to understand. Uh, I hope you do, and if I, I have a reason for doing this again, because I just, I just learned that the church that we pastored has now, they've changed their constitution and their statement of faith. And their statement of faith now does not allow for a pre-tribulation rapture. And uh, they have uh, they have assumed the basic, they're not sure if they're amillennial, but uh, somewhere's close to the amillennial position. Uh, that, uh, that is really a shocker to me because from 1972, uh, that church had premillennial, pre-tribulational preachers, including myself, and every last one of them preached the coming of Christ as we do it here. And uh, I was just absolutely, I was just dumbfounded that that could happen a couple of years after we left it, that that could change like that. I'm not sure what we could do to change our statement of faith because we have said it was irrevocable. So I'm just not sure how a statement of faith can actually be changed. But they did. And uh, if you don't, uh, if you don't understand that, I mean, it's not as if they brought out pitchforks and all kinds of evil things. They just, they just made it a reform statement of faith. And if you can see it on your, on your uh, website, if you check them. And uh, this, of course, 
resulted in the exodus basically of all the people that we know because they just they just wouldn't be there and so now it's a different church uh, completely different uh, why do I say that I say that because it can happen in any church obviously that's one church I would not have believed it would happen but it did and it's just a very recent development this year in fact and uh, so I just learned about that yesterday. Some men were at the meeting and was telling me about this. I said, well, I'll check on the website to make sure that I got my facts straight. And, and sure enough, they have, they have made it a kind of a general resurrection thing. Uh, we used to have it defined that the Lord comes in the air to take the church home. The tribulation follows with the kingdom to follow. Well, Mark Dever, who is a uh, Southern Baptist preacher, he's in Washington, D.C., now, he has made a very loud statement that if you have a premillennial statement in your, in your statement of faith, then you're a heretic. And uh, so that some guys are following this and they're removing the premillennial statement of faith. The Niagara Bible Conference back in the late 1800s met in Niagara-on-the-Lake and they as a large, large body of theologians and scholars and Bible believers got together, Canadian and American, and they decided 14 statements that would constitute the uh, fundamental essential belief of the Christian faith. And uh, in that, there was, I think, at article number six or seven or so, they had this long statement in there that defined clearly about the coming of the Lord Jesus and the rapture, the seven-year tribulation, the kingdom of God to follow thereafter, and then the eternal things, such as the judgment uh, seat and, and the white throne and the end and the eternal state and so on. They had that in their uh, 14 articles of the Niagara Conference. This was rolling along until about 1910. It was then when the Presbyterians were having a battle with the modernism and they were fighting. And so they kind of gathered together with the Niagara Bible Conference and they came to a decision that they couldn't accept all of these statements that they made as essential and fundamental to the Christian faith. So they reduced it to five statements. Well, those five, there's nothing wrong with those five. But they don't really define things very clearly. And so that this has not, this is not something that just happens. It has happened and things have changed over time. And things will change if people don't understand what they believe. Do we get that? If we don't know what we believe, if we don't know why we believe it, we can easily change it. I just want us to be a people who know what we're talking about. That's all. I just want us to be a people who are convinced and not swayed by the first popular voice that comes along. Uh, so that's that's one of my concerns, and, and we want to not talk about that anymore tonight. But I just want to show you tonight that the Bible does teach a pre-tribulation rapture, and it's not something that we've just pulled out of the air. There is lots of biblical information, and we've taught you lots on that. But But if we don't pay attention, we won't know. And so that's really what it comes down to. If we don't learn, then... Nothing ever, I mean, everything can change just according to what whoever is in charge will make it happen. So, so I just want us to look at verse number one, where we read, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. So this is where we see the, uh, the announcement that something big is coming down the pipe. So I want us to look at want us to look at this chart. Uh, this is uh, this is the pre-wrath 
um, concept that has come as a very uh, recent theological position. Uh, it hasn't yet gained enough ground to be constituted an essential part of Christian faith. This is a uh, Marvin Rosenthal uh, development together with a man by the name of Van Campen. Van Campen was a billionaire who decided to sit down and study his Bible and he came to a conclusion that the church would not be raptured before the tribulation but that the church would be raptured sometime during the tribulation and what he determined was that uh, there's, there is a beginning of the seven-year period, Daniel's 70th week. So he, he did uh, understand that. But what he decided was that the first three and a half years of the tribulation was the beginning of sorrows. And then at the midpoint of the tribulation period, you have the abomination of desolation. And that is when the Antichrist comes into the uh, temple that has been rebuilt in Jerusalem and there uh, defiles it by whatever means. Probably by his entering into a Jewish temple alone would defile it, but he most likely goes in and there declares himself to be the God of the universe. And so then that launches into a great tribulation so that you have a great tribulation happening and just before God intervenes, what he is saying is that you've got man's battles, man's fighting, man's wrath, Antichrist wrath, but what you have in the middle of the Great Tribulation, which is the last three and a half years, in the middle of that, you've got the rapture taking place just prior to the wrath of God. And that's how he justifies that Christians don't come under wrath they are taken out before wrath. So that is that is a position that has come to uh, light in the last 20, 25 years, and uh, it's called the pre-wrath rapture. Some of you may have been exposed to that teaching. Marvin Rosenthal traveled the Southern Ontario churches a number of years for on several occasions, and a brilliant man, uh, really accomplished a lot in his life. But But this is a position that he popularized. Van Campen developed it. Marvin Rosal popularized it by his books and by his uh, enterprise down in Florida where he built uh, something that looks like the Jerusalem temple and the temple grounds and a symposium for the Bible and all kinds of really neat and wonderful things. We've been there on several occasions, but I always tell people, if you go see it, enjoy it, but don't buy any of the books. Just don't do that. But it's now handed over to the charismatic, so things have changed. So that's, that's taken a complete different, uh, different stand again on different things. Now, this is the, and I'm not teaching you the pre-wrath. I'm teaching you enough that you know what the pre-wrath is. All right. So when you hear that, you say, Oh, that's, that's strange. That's different. This is the traditional view of, uh, what uh, the Niagara Bible Conference accepted. It's the traditional view that, uh, churches since the, uh, Oh, uh, in, in the later years, 1700s, 1800s adopted, and uh, it became a very popular, renowned theological position, and churches understood this. Now, you must understand this, and that is that the Reformed churches never understood the uh, future prophecies. They, they just didn't get it. From Augustine through to Calvin, and all of the associated people with that movement for many hundreds of years, they just didn't deal with prophecy. They just had an amillennial position where it said that 
uh, there is coming an end of the world, Christ will come, and the dead will rise, and that's pretty much it. They believed in the resurrection. They believed that Christ would come, but but they didn't define anything theologically. So you couldn't find you couldn't find any prophetic value in Spurgeon's. Spurgeon had phenomenal preaching, but you wouldn't find anything prophetic that was of any significance, and you wouldn't find it in any of the other greats of history. They had tr- tremendous gospel preaching, but you would not find anything of of value. And then when the people developed the pre-tribulation idea, the, the, they saw it in Scripture. It wasn't that they invented it. They saw it, and that's how truth is. You, you see it in Scripture. You may be blind to it for a period of time, and then all of a sudden you see it, and they put together charts galore, have been produced and sold and, and just sent all over the world, and uh, this is the tribulation mark and, uh, map, and we have just pretty much just been following the traditional view of the rapture of the church, followed by seven years of tribulation. I think we agree that the first three and a half years are not as intense as the last three and a half years, but the seven years is a seven year of tribulation, so it's not a fun time at any point. What it means is people have missed the rapture, and if they miss the rapture, they face the judgment of God. So it's not a good period at any case. And so in that tribulation period, we have first the seven seals, followed by the seven trumpets, and that will be followed by the seven uh, vials or the seven bowls. So, so that's what we're, that's where we are. We are now moving towards the seven bowls that are given to us in Revelation chapters 15, chapter 16, and then chapter 17 goes on to show the the, uh, the the false world religion and how it comes to a close and identifies it. And then chapter 18 gives us the false Babylonian um, a merchant and commerce position in the world at that time and the world economy at that time. So all of that comes to a head so that we have Babylon, uh, we've got Rome, we've got a lot of these things that are yet to come. But tonight... I just simply wanted to reinforce the idea that the pre-tribulation rapture is not uh, just a church idea, not just a group of theologians' idea. It is something that people discovered. It's like, if you recall, reading that justification by faith was something that just dawned a reformation because people had not understood justification by faith. So Martin Luther did not invent justification by faith. Martin Luther saw it, and then he began to preach it. So justification by faith, though not seen, is a biblical concept. The rapture, the tribulation, and all of that, though not seen by many, is still a biblical concept. And so that's what we're trying to get across to us as we look at this very important subject matter. We see in this passage of Scripture before us in Revelation chapter 15, I'm hoping that you have uh, you have your Bibles open. Uh, we have seven angels. Now I mentioned to you the uh, the uh, the word heptads uh, last Sunday night and uh, gave you a long list of sevens. And I'm not going to give you any more list of sevens tonight. But I found at least another hundred or so, and I shared them with a group of pastors yesterday as we just as, as I kind of led into the subject matter that I wanted to deal with. A perfect God gives us a perfect number and shows us a perfect plan. So that's 
what uh, what the Bible is really all about. It's from seven days of creation to beginning all the way to the end where we see seven and seven and seven over and over again. So here in chapter 15, we again see uh, we see seven angels. Uh, we see seven last plagues. We're just going to mention them tonight. We're going to be talking about them a little bit. And then we see that the world will be filled with the wrath of God. So we see in uh, in the beginning verses of this chapter. So I want us to just to to look at verse uh, verse one again, just just to have a look here. Great and marvelous, this sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels having seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. So all of these statements found in the first verse. And when you see that it is filled with the wrath of God, like what is in your mind when you read the term filled with the wrath of God? Uh, if it's filled, there's, there's not much room left for emptiness or there's, there's no room for anything else. But what's happening is that this is just all about the wrath of God. This is all about God's severity and God's anger over a very sinful world. That's what we have as a very introductory statement in chapter 15 and verse number 1. I want us to look secondly tonight at the peace that all of God's victors enjoy. We see it in verse 2 down to verse 4, and uh, this is just an ideal verse. If you just focus your eyes on some of these verses here, uh, they speak peace to us because it is here where John saw something that was different from the wrath of God. And he is saying, oh, I'm talking about the wrath of God, but I also want you to know that there are some people that are very safe. Okay? So, so there is safety in the, in the storm. There's shelter in the storm. He said, and I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image, and over his mark. Let me back up here. Just a last couple of weeks, I've been emphasizing something that perhaps has been missed by some people, and some modern teachers today, good Bible scholars, are saying that people who take the mark of the beast in the book of the Revelation can be saved. And uh, the uh, the fact is that the Bible doesn't say that, but theologians are saying it. And and here's my take on this. I have a great respect for theology, a great respect for intellectual designs of Scripture and understanding of Scripture. But when theology changes what the Scripture says, I choose Scripture. I don't choose the theological say, well, it's got to work out this way. But if the scripture says differently, my position is I take what the scripture says and not what theology says works out. Theology says that the grace of God saves everybody. Everybody's savable for God came to save all men. That's what theology says. The Bible says that those who took the mark of the beast would face the wrath of God. And so if that's what the Bible says, then... I, I still hang to that. I still believe in that and will not. Uh, in fact, one man came to me yesterday. He said, I'm so glad that you haven't changed on any of this. And I said to him, I said, hey, I'm way too old to change. So I said, I'm just not going to be doing that. But remember this. You don't not change because you're old. 
You don't change because you have a certain amount of values that you have built into your system over the years. And because of those values, you maintain a position. Now, the reason I say this, I just wanted to back up on this a little bit. The reason I say this, because he is pointing out those that had gotten the victory over the beast, not those who gave in to the beast. Victory over the beast. Those who got victory over his image did not bow to the image, though the image became becomes a talking force, most likely a living computerized personage, not a human personage, but a computerized one that's going to command an awful lot of, uh, of power from the hands of the Antichrist. And these are the people that gain victory against that image, which will be a satanic force working against all right in the time of the tribulation. But the last statement is, and they gained victory over his mark. Not that they received his mark, but that they gained victory over the mark. Now let me ask you this, does that make sense to you? I think you've heard this all of your life. If you're in a pre-tribulation teaching such a situation, you've heard this all your life, but now with the new slant coming in, I don't know how popular it's going to become, but, but I just want us to realize that, okay, whatever is popular is fine. Here's what the Bible says. And may not be popular, but this is what the Word of God says. Sorry for emphasizing that so hard tonight, but I'm a little riled up about that. But uh, just wanted you to see the victory. We see, furthermore, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having what? Having the harps of God. I understand we're going to have a little extra music here last next Sunday night. We got some of our people participating in the song service that that are going to add a little dimension that way. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, but one of the things we're not going to have here is a harp. I don't, anybody here know how to play a harp? If we had somebody that could play a harp, we'd like you to do that. Uh, we'd even rent one or something. I'm not sure what we would do. But you know, one day you and I are going to know how to play harps. I don't think that's all we'll be doing in heaven. Do you remember the old pictures of people sitting down playing harps with the angels and so on? Well, it's not so bad. When I hear Edward Clausen playing that, that's really not so bad. That's really quite a nice concept. But, but I don't think that's all we're going to be doing. But this just simply is a, it just shows us the peace and tranquility. If you can just sit down and play that beautiful harp, you're just saying that I am at rest. I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm just enjoying peace, calm, beautiful music. That's all. And that's what's happening to these people, the ones that have gained the victory over the beast, over his mark, and all of that. So obviously that's people who are in the tribulation that have been delivered from the onslaught. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to put the song of Moses on the screen and you and I are not going to sing it because I don't know the, I don't know the music to it. But I'm going to put the song of Moses on the screen for you and I'm going to read it. Uh, we don't know what the exact words are of the song of the lamb, but I do have a song of the lamb here. We're going to play that. And here's what it says, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Let's look at the song of Moses. We find it in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. And uh, let me just read this quickly. 
This is after the uh, deliverance through the Red Sea. They have just come through. Pharaoh's armies have drowned in the water. And this song sings about this. I don't know what melody. I think it was a Southern Gospel concert. But I think what they're doing is, verse 15, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will prepare him an habitation, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depth have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellency, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sentest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. And with the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright as in heap, and the depths were congealed in the heat of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with thy wind, the sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like unto thee, O Lord God, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestina. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed, the mighty men of Moab, Trembling shall take hold upon them, all the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them by the greatness of thine arm. They shall be as still as a stone, till thy people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over, which thou hast purchased. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them, but the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. And Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. This is the glorious song of Moses. It is a song of deliverance and a song of victory. It is a song 
that rejoices over the destruction of the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God. Well, when the sea of glass is seen in Revelation chapter 15, we see that these people who are delivered out of the hands of the Antichrist and they are set free and they're ready to enter into the kingdom of God, we see them sing the song of Moses. Again, the deliverance from the Antichrist, the deliverance from the beast, the deliverance from the evil, the deliverance from the wicked, in all of this turbulence that is happening in the tribulation. So these people are rejoicing because they have been set free and they sing about it. Well, they also sang the song of the Lamb, and it will be likely, as we have in Revelation 5, the details of that song of redemption that will be sung. We read in verse 4, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Could be that that is what's going to be sung in that day to come. And so in the third place tonight, we look at the heavenly troops preparing for battle. We have in verse number 5, And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. This is, uh, this is very interesting because we have read the last little while now, chapter uh, 14 and now in chapter 15, we're reading about a temple, tabernacle. We're reading about something that is just so important to the uh, biblical account of the worship of Israel. The temple and tabernacle have not been that important to the church, but they have been significant for Israel. Remember that it was first the mobile tabernacle and then it was the situated temple in Jerusalem. But this is not what that's referring to. But remember this, that both the tabernacle and the temple, according to the book of Hebrews, were symbolic of that which is in heaven. So God took what was in heaven and had them do a replicate of that on earth for the worship of God. But now we see it functioning in the heavens. Do you know what that tells me? Is simply this, that the worship of the tabernacle and the temple was not for the Gentile world. The worship of the temple and the tabernacle was for his people, the Jews, distinctly so, and if anybody was going to participate in that worship, they had to do what the Jews did. They had to believe what the Jews did. They had to become a Jew in order that they might participate in the worship. This tells me that's God dealing with Israel. God redeeming Israel. Now, there are many others, just like in the New Testament church age. But what we have here is we have the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony, and it is open in heaven. Now I just wanted to bring this picture for you tonight with these two words. We read the word temple and we don't know which part of the temple that is referring to. Generally we think that it is referring to the whole thing, but not necessarily. So there are two words in the Greek language that give us a distinction about which part of the temple is referred to. You remember that there was the uh, the temple grounds, there was a court of the women, there was a court of the Gentiles, there were uh, different activities, even where livestock was entertained, 
in the temple grounds. But there was a place that was known as the holy place, and within that was the holy of holies. So, uh, so these two Greek words distinguish what the author is talking about. Uh, naos in the Greek language means the temple holy where the holy of holies is and where the holy situation takes place. Heron is the temple grounds. So whenever you read in the Bible that they went to the temple, for instance, when Jesus was at the temple watching people put money into the offering containers, he was standing in Heron, but our English word just simply says temple. When the priest went in to do the holy service of God, sacrificing on the behalf of the people of God, he went into the naos, and in English we just have temple. So it, it really helps a lot to be able to determine which word is used. If you read the word temple, which word is actually used? So when we read in Revelation chapter 15 that there was a temple there, it has used the word naos, not heron. So it's not talking about anything that was quite common to man in the Jerusalem temple, but it's talking about that very unique holy place, and it is out of this holy place where the wrath of God is coming from. It is out of here. So it's from the holiness of God that wrath is being revealed against sin. So when people think it might be okay to sin a little bit, I want you to know that it's never okay to sin any amount because the wrath of God from heaven is revealed against all unrighteousness. So the heavenly truth preparing for battle. We see the description of the seven angels. The seven angels came out of this temple. They came out of Naos. Can we understand that now? They came out of that very uniquely distinct holy situation in the temple they have seven plagues. They're clothed in pure and white linen, and they have their breasts, uh, the breasts girded with golden girdles. Just a basic description of what these angels look like. The seven plagues. Isn't it interesting how God uses plagues in certain situations to convince an unbelieving world? When when Moses went in to stand before Pharaoh and said, let my people go, God said, Pharaoh's pretty tough cookie, so I'm going to authorize you to use plagues against him. How many plagues? Ten plagues. I'm not going to ask you to list them. Uh, that's not fair because I don't even have a list of them here myself. But I think we could guess at most of them. But... The ten plagues, which of them convinced Pharaoh? I would agree the last one did, but it didn't really either. Okay, so you have the last plague. It resulted in the death of the firstborn. Okay, get out, go get out. However, he went back to try to capture him. That's why you have the Song of Moses. Because God finally landed up destroying Pharaoh because he even changed his mind about submitting to the tenth plague. So what that shows us is that in spite of the fact that God brought plagues into the land of Egypt, men's hearts did not change even though God brought very harsh judgment against them. Now, these seven angels 
They bring seven plagues. Let's just look at what they are. We have the plagues that will come on the land, and uh, we're going to look at this next Sunday night because they are itemized for us in the next chapters. There's the plague against the land. There is the plague against the sea. This is happening at the very end of the tribulation period. There's the plague against the rivers and fresh water springs. There uh, is the uh, plague against the sun. Whatever that is going to be is going to result in some very uncomfortable days on planet Earth. There is the plague that will be against the throne of the beasts. So we have uh, the beasts who are such vile creatures here on Earth, and you've got the plagues that will come up against them. You've got the plague that comes up against the great river Euphrates. That river was there in, uh, in the beginning, in the creation of the world. You read about it in the book of Genesis. That river still flows, same river. It might have changed a little bit in its flow. However, it is still the same river, and the day is coming when God will find it necessary to send plagues against that great river of Euphrates, and then ultimately he'll send a plague into the air. You talk about pollution that is yet to come. Only when God puts his hand to to uh, the task will things really become miserable on the earth. So those are... Those are the seven plagues that these angels are bringing with them. They're coming out of the naos, the temple. They're coming out of the presence of the holiness of God. They're coming girded with golden breastplates and appear to be these, these very elite servants, but they're coming to bring plagues. The beast that administers the golden vial. Uh, this is interesting because we read that it is a beast that does that. Uh, that would be one of the beasts of Revelation 4. It would be one of the beasts that would represent the administrative force in the heavenlies. This would not be the evil beast. This is not the Antichrist now pouring out the bowls of wrath because he has no purpose in doing that. Uh, this is the bowls that are coming from the hand of God given to the messengers so that they would come and bring the bowls. The reason I use the word bowls is because of the Greek word fialas. Fialas means vile. That's how it's directly transliterated from the Greek into the English where it talks about vials. But these vials were, uh, they were bowls that were wide at the top, very narrow at the bottom, but they were also very shallow. And so the angels come along and we call them vials, we call them bowls, whatever we want to, and the angel comes, and the severity of the wrath of God is found in these bowls, and they're poured out upon the earth one after another after another. And the fact that they are very shallow bowls shows us not that there's not a lot of judgment in there, but shows us that when they're poured out, it's very quickly. It's, it's a very short term. It happens suddenly. So boom, there's a judgment. Boom, there's a judgment. Boom, there's a judgment. And that's the kind of thing that happens with the unleashing of the bowls, and it's one of the administrative beasts that is administering that. One of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. And then finally, we notice that that temple will become completely blocked until the bowls are emptied. So somehow, all worship, all honor, all adoration, everything to do with with the holiness that is taking place in this temple comes to a complete standstill 
Why? Because all of God's wrath is being exercised upon a very ungodly world. We read in verse 8, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So when the wrath of God is being unleashed upon an ungodly world, the temple becomes silent, and the ongoing worship is halted. The glory of God has filled the temple so much so that nobody can enter into it. And this just shows us the dynamite, the, the force of the future wrath that comes upon the world. Now, I just want us to realize that Jesus Christ came to save and not to judge. If all of this, which he knew would be revealed in the book of the Revelation, he would have wanted to bypass all of that for mankind. And all it would have taken was for mankind to say, yes, we do acknowledge that you are the Son of God. We acknowledge that you are the Savior. We submit ourselves to your rule and to your authority. And let me assure you, if the world had and the Jews had said, yes, Lord, you are our Lord, you are our King, none of this would have needed to happen. This happens because of a rejection. It, it happens because people will not submit to him. So I want us to realize that Jesus Christ made provision for all to find shelter in him so that every man would find peace in the midst of storm. Every man would have the comfort of God to comfort him when all of the wrath of God is unleashed. Where will you be? When all of this is taking place and the earth is rocked and shaken and fire and all kinds of stuff are happening all over planet earth, horrendous things are happening, where will you be? Well, if you're a child of God, you're going to be beside Jesus because he made a shelter. He made a place for us. We're safe. So when we sing that old gospel song, especially at funerals, safe in the arms of Jesus. That is meaningful to us whether we die or not. The fact is that we will be held in complete peace and comfort when this world is experiencing the most difficult of times, unprecedented times, because Jesus has made a provision for every person. The unbelieving world will encounter wrath and fury for rejection. It will, just like Pharaoh, finally... Just continue to harden his heart. Just continue to resist. Just continue to say no. And even when it appeared that he gave in, he comes back with a vengeance and shows his heart has not changed. So we come to the revelation and we will see that no matter what happens to mankind during that time, those who have taken the mark of the beast and those who serve the Antichrist do not repent. They do not change. They hang tight onto their rebellion. But Jesus made a way. And, and I, I know that you cannot threaten people with the wrath of God. I know you cannot threaten people with hellfire. I know you cannot change people's hearts because there is a hell to come. Hell on earth and hell finally. But I want us to realize this, that it's real no matter whether people's hearts are changed or not. 
And, and if a person's heart continues to be hardened, that heart will only answer to him one day, that's all. But I'm glad today that you can say he is my Lord, he is my Savior, he is my coming King, and I honor him and I worship him. Is that true of you? Thank God for that, and we can rejoice so much in that. Thank you for joining us today at the Revelation Podcast. We invite you to join us again next week for a new episode. If you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or really wherever you're listening today, please subscribe and share with your friends. If you want to hear more messages from Dr. Neil Sawatsky or learn how you can visit a service, please check out openbible.ca.